1: Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. I'm your host, Chris Meek. It's great to have you with us again. Today's guest is a remarkable woman who brings a wealth of experience in what it takes to overcome obstacles, triumph through adversity, and achieve personal empowerment. Ruth Rathblot is a TEDx speaker and an award-winning former CEO committed to creating inclusion for all. Ruth has spent her entire career focused on providing opportunities for those who face obstacles. She's been a leader in nonprofit organizations for more than 25 years, 15 of which she spent at Big Brothers Big Sisters of New York City. Ruth is also the former president and CEO of the Harlem Educational Activities Fund, and she currently serves as a board member of the Lucky Finn Project, which raises awareness and celebrates children and adults born with limb differences. Ruth Rathlot, welcome to Next Steps Forward.
2: Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to be here.
1: Not as excited as I am. I mean, it's been over a year in the making to get this together, so I'm just thrilled to finally get on your calendar. So thanks for your time. We truly appreciate it.
2: Same. No, I'm excited to dig in.
1: So to start the conversation, I think we need to go back to the beginning, and specifically your beginning. You were born with a congenital condition known as amniotic band syndrome. The result is that a limb doesn't fully develop. What percentage of babies are born with limb differences?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It's about one in 1,500 births are have a limb difference or have amniotic band syndrome.
1: And is there a leading cause or causes of limb difference?
2: No, it's interesting. It's caused, they say, by a protein band wrapping around your hand when you're in utero, and that it causes the the birth to the development to stop. And so, but they don't know the cause of it. You know it's and it's interesting. my mom actually thought that the reason it happened and at that time, Chris, they called it a congenital birth defect. Um, In some ways, they still do, but now that we have a name for it, and I only learned the name a few years ago, she blamed herself for taking a pill when I was in utero, and that would have had to be true for everyone. So right now, no, they don't have a specific cause other than this protein that wraps around um, a limb.
1: So to that point, in your case, you were born before sonograms were used to monitor fetal development. That meant that your limb difference wasn't known until you were born how did your parents react when they learned of your limb difference and what advice did they receive, including from one nurse in particular about how they should raise you?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. It was the days before sonogram, so not to totally date myself, right? But I was a total surprise to them. And I was a surprise to the people in the hospital as well, because they hadn't necessarily seen this kind of limb difference before or had occasion. And so my parents, um, it was And again, not only was it early days of sonograms, but it was early days before fathers really were present in the delivery room. And my father and my mom found a doctor who would allow the father to be in the room. So when I was born, the doctor quickly ushered my father outside while the nurses took me away to clean me up and told him what happened. And they both went back in preparing to tell my mom because she was gonna be in shock. And luckily a nurse saw them kind of starting to talk about it. They were definitely bewildered and not sure what to make of it. My mom actually started crying a little bit because again, this is a new baby and she's missing five fingers. And the nurse was really good. She stepped right in and she said, you know what? You're going to take this little girl home. You're going to love her and you're going to treat her as you would any other child. You're going to treat her as normal. And that's exactly what they did.
1: And how did that influence your parents' way of thinking and how they raised you? And how did it influence your mindset as you grew up?
2: Yeah, I think it was huge. I think that idea of treating me as normal became their North Star. So they encouraged me to try everything. They almost it was like a non-issue in our family growing up. And while that was really important because it allowed me to take on things that maybe other parents would have said, oh, I don't think you can do that, don't try that, et cetera. They had the opposite approach, which was try that, do that, you can. Yet we didn't talk about the feelings behind it. So when you don't, when you kind of normalize something to the point of not talking about it, you miss, I I think my parents and I missed an opportunity to talk about some of the feelings that were coming up, especially as I got to my teenage years, which you start, and you're, any teenager starts to think so much about how do they fit in, et cetera. And for my parents, I think we missed an opportunity of what was going on in my head about it.
1: So to that point, you mentioned you started hiding your disability when you're 13 years old. I did. You, you weren't talking about the feelings, you're talking you're not transitioning to a teenager. And you've even said it became your top priority. Mm. What mm. changed at that point to prompt you to change your behavior?
2: Yeah, so I started I started at a new high school, and I remember this day very well, Chris. I got on a yellow school bus like a lot of kids and was going to a new high school, which brings up a lot of feelings anyway when we start new schools. My new high school was co ed. And so it was going to be the first time in a while that I had been with boys. And I started to get nervous. And I was actually the first, first, one of the first pickups on that bus route. So the bus route almost became painfully long because I started to realize more and more kids were getting on the bus, more and more kids who didn't know me didn't know about my hand. And I started to just get very self conscious. And so what I did that first day was I kind of just tucked it into my front left pocket thinking, oh, I'll just ride out this bus ride that way. I got to the new high school and I said, oh, well, I'll just go this day with kind of just hiding it. I, I want to get to know people first. And that decision that I made at 13 impacted the next 25 years of my life um, because I made that one decision to start hiding it. And the more that I hit it, the more awful it became in my mind of that. I couldn't show it. Um, There was no way I was going to show it because it started to become so kind of awful and um, painful, frankly. Um, And so, yeah, that decision definitely impacted the rest of my life because I also stopped then enjoying the things that I had enjoyed in middle school. And before that, I stopped doing sports. I stopped doing theater, which I had loved. I stopped doing student government and getting involved. So it was almost like that choice of putting my hand in my pocket was that moment of halt in how I started enjoying my life or stopped enjoying my life.
1: Was that change something that your parents or others around you noticed? And if so, what was their reaction?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I think, I know that they noticed, but they didn't talk to me about the, the hiding so much, but they they were the type of parents, again, because of that treat her as normal, that were very solution focused. So they thought, well, we see her hiding. It started to affect my posture. So I started kind of leaning to one side, which would be natural, but just to get my hand more in my pocket. And so literally my posture started being off and they noticed that. I don't know that they had a full idea of how much I was hiding throughout the day because I would come home and wasn't hiding. But throughout my days and, um, and any events I would go to, I would hide. But when I was at home, I wasn't hiding. It was at when I was external in the world. And so they being solution focused, they started thinking about what things can we do to help her. And one of the thoughts they had was, well, why don't we get her a prosthesis? Why don't we get her another hand that will look like her, this, my, my dominant hand, my right hand. And so that she doesn't have to feel like she can't do anything or no one will notice the difference. Um, and so they brought me at 16 to get a prosthesis to, to basically to cover it so that it would look like I have two hands.
1: So you mentioned a few moments ago how they didn't talk about the feelings. You just mentioned right now how that they're solution focused and solution oriented, which I love you and I from the same generation. Is it just because, you know, 25, 30 years ago, we didn't talk about things like that, you know, in terms of avoiding feelings and things that are beyond the, I'll call the norm of the neighborhood or or, our life.
2: Yeah. I think they probably thought they were doing me a favor of not bringing it up, you know, not, not making it the issue. Um, I think that was a piece of it for sure as I've explored it with my father is that you know this was just who i was but it didn't need further explanation but could so i think that's why we didn't bring it up but you're absolutely right i think young people today have so much more opportunity to talk about things we do it in school curriculums we have it in after school programs in writing in magazines we talk about difference in in some interesting ways so young people are more free to express themselves there's almost a a culture of acceptance around difference that young people have the, have access to. Which is awesome. Mm-hmm, totally. Which is
1: absolutely awesome. So how long did you continue to hide your limb difference? And was there a single moment when you decided that you were no longer going to do it?
2: Yeah. So I hid my limb difference for 25 years. Um, and there were several moments where I toyed with the idea of stopping. Um, and I even at one point, so I toyed with the idea of stopping kind of every new introduction to something, new experience, like going to college. I thought, you know what? I know I finished high school. I was hiding it there. Now in college, I'm not going to hide it. Like I remember saying that to myself, you're going to go to college and it's not going to hide. Well, we rely on our old patterns, right? Because they're so ingrained in us. So I went back to hiding very quickly. Uh, So I went through college hiding. I went through graduate school hiding and even had a professor who had one arm that I noticed right away and said, okay, well, if she's not hiding, I shouldn't hide. I kept hiding. And what was interesting is when I was about 20 years old, I was in an internship at a law firm where I had kind of an unfortunate experience that you and I have talked about a little bit. And I even talk about it in my TEDx where one of the senior partners called me into his office and asked me if I had ever gone to kindergarten. Now my job that summer was to showcase the evolution of a laundry detergent box top. And as exciting as that may sound to you and to your (laughs) listeners, it was a project that I could own, it was mine. So, and what that required is that I showed all of the different box top competitors and how this one was different and why it deserved a patent. And I, he, about three weeks in, he calls me into his office, asks me if I ever go to kindergarten, doesn't ask me to sit down by the way, which is never a great sign when you're showing up somewhere. I felt immediately like I was in the principal's office. And by the way, I was a good, a goody good. So I, I was, was real. I was never in the principal's office um, other than to do extra credit assignments. And so he calls me into his office and says the question about kindergarten. And Basically, he doesn't let me answer and says, because if you had, you would have learned how to use scissors because Chris, my work was, and I looked at it with him. Like I then saw my work on his desk and I said, oh my, it's not it's not good. It wasn't, stand, it wasn't up to a standard. And I left really embarrassed and ashamed and started figuring out how I could get the work done and found some creative ways to get the work done. But after that internship, I made the decision that in a work setting, a real work setting, I would never hide my hand again because it was too embarrassing and too shameful Um, because I couldn't, I was super and probably being firstborn, being someone with a a limb difference and a disability. I am very achievement focused and I never want to be at the bottom of the, the ring. I like to be at the top. So I made that decision that in a work setting, I will never hide my physically hide my hand again. And I truly thought I hadn't. Um, What I didn't realize is that there are different ways of hiding. Um, When you you can physically hide something and then you can not talk about it, which is also hiding.
1: I mean, that's a lifetime, literally a lifetime, 25 years you were Mm. hiding. I can't imagine the mental stress and toll and strain it put on you every day in everyday life and activities. I mean, first of all, I'm sorry, that's kind of how you felt or in what you had to go through but also I can't imagine how strong that made you, but also maybe bitter?
2: Yeah, no, I think, it, I think those are really good words. I think it was absolutely exhausting. It was definitely lonely. Uh, it forced me to be creative, to figure out ways to get things done. And that even by hiding so that no one would find out, I mean, I was constantly forecasting my next steps. One of my friends told me recently that even we were on a trip and we were coming back and having dinner at a friend's house during college. And she said, all you had in your head, Ruth, is that you wanted me to sit next to you at that dinner because you were afraid that they were the type of family that was going to want to hold hands and say grace. And you didn't want to surprise or shock anyone. She's like, Ruth, that never went through my mind that you would have to think like you thought about that stuff all the time. So that there was, it was exhausting and it was lonely. Um, I think bitter, probably not as much, but probably sad. Um, And always, you know, going through that space, thinking if I had just been born with two hands, would my life be better? Um, Would things be easier? Would I fall in love easier? Would someone love me um, easier? Because even when it came to dating and relationships, I hid my hand from everyone. Um, and so that's exhausting too, because then someone's not really getting to know you. They're getting to know the person that you're showing, but not the person that you maybe really are and the things that you struggle with.
1: Oh, thank you for sharing that. And you and I spoke before the show today and my worst fear just happened. My vicious, uh, Shih Tzu Zeke saw a squirrel or a bird outside. So apologies for him interrupting you there. No. So let's transition into your professional career. You've been an organizational leader for 25 years and much of your work experience, such as your 15 years with big brothers, big sisters of New York city involves working with children. We know that children tend to be inquisitive and they certainly aren't shy about asking questions, especially when they see something is a bit different. How have children approached your limb difference compared to the way adults have?
2: Yeah. Children are remarkable um, and very different than adults. Children ask, right? They see something that's different and they ask. So they say, Miss, what happened to your hand? But it's not coming out of a place, a mean-spirited place. It's coming out of curiosity. Kids are curious. And it's the most beautiful, amazing thing about young people is their curiosity. As adults, sometimes, Chris, we shush them or silence them because we say, and especially parents around kids when they ask, will say, oh, don't ask her that. Don't talk about it, et cetera. No, that's rude. Well, that sends two messages, right? A, it sends a message of don't be curious, Um, leave your curiosity inside, don't be outwardly curious, which is a gift as we go through life about being curious about things. And the second, it also sends a message around shame around dif- disability and difference. Because if we can't talk about disability and difference, then it's the message is that it's a negative thing. When in fact, I come from a mindset of disability is a strength. It's something that has allowed me to grow and be creative. It's something I was born with. It's something that challenges me. So when I hear parents say that, I actually pause them and I say, no, please allow you the gift that your, your child has is that they're curious. And they actually, what's amazing about kids, and I remember this one young woman when I was at Big Brothers Big Sisters saying to me, I think your hand is beautiful. And it was such a cool moment because I had never heard that, I had never allowed someone to say that to me. And so for this little girl to already recognize that difference is beautiful, I, I that's the gift of kids, that they react because they don't see it as weird because they haven't been taught that it's weird yet. When we silence them, though, we start to teach them and ingrain in them that difference in disability
1: is weird. We have so much to learn from children. Hmm. We, we need to listen more.
2: It's why I love working with young people because their minds are so in some ways unfiltered. And so they you get the best out of them in terms of what they're thinking. And we absolutely can learn so much from them.
1: Well, and to that point, can we learn something from the way children interact with people with disabilities?
2: Yeah, I think that um, that's a good question. I think that we can, I think, because it's, again, that curiosity part that we can learn from about how do we want, as adults, how do we want to be asked about our differences and our disabilities? I think we can also start thinking about how young people approach the world with that open mind. So rather than it being something that we say, you know, because we we create bias over time, right? Like, because we learn things about people, we get have a different experiences. But with young people, if we took that mindset and said, this is something new, what can I learn from it? Yeah, then we can learn from kids and how they see the world.
1: As you look back on those years, what advice would would you share with a younger you and what do you tell children with limb differences today based on your experiences?
2: Yeah, it's really good. Um, hmm. I think that I think about little Ruthie. I think about her and what she needed and what she could hear now. I think there's a piece and the beauty of you mentioned that I was on the board of the Lucky Finn Project. One of the beauties of being in that community is the idea of being a role model for young people who are in that community that are coming up, who have the advantage of seeing adults. Again, I went through my life only knowing myself and my disability, thinking I was the only one, thinking I was the only one hiding. And so that space around finding community and finding for me, Lucky Finn, was twofold. A, I got to connect with other adults who had shared experiences like mine, and that was super powerful, Chris. And then the other piece is how do I how am I a role model for young people and their parents who worry about am I going to be successful am I going to find love am I going to be um, accepted am I going to accept myself and my difference like and so I think about my young self and the first message I would give her is it's going to be okay it's all going to work out and the second is start talking about your feelings about this early because there are going to be moments that you're stressed. We've all had moments of stress, right? Where we doubt ourselves or we think we're different. We think we're the only ones. You don't have to have a disability to have those feelings. They may get magnified when you have a disability, but the part that I, where I stress is, yeah, but that's what this whole gift is about is this journey of acceptance, not not only from yourself, but because that's huge but also from communities and other people. Um, And, but you have to start with yourself. Um, And so I would tell my younger self, don't worry, it's gonna work out.
1: You went from hiding to, in your term, unhiding. Mm. Beyond the obvious of not hiding, what does it mean for someone with disabilities to quote, unhide?
2: Yeah, it's, um, it's about choice. So the term unhiding for me is about choosing. It's choosing to reveal that part of yourself so that others can see it, but also that you, you're you in charge. That's what unhiding is about. Because hiding was so much, not a victim thing, but it was a choice that I made to not share myself with the world. Unhiding is about choosing to share myself with the world and choosing when I share myself with the world and how I share myself with the world. So I spend a lot of time on my journey of unhiding, sharing my experience my experiences, um, whether it be around hiding, whether it be around um, struggling, um, whether it be around the joy and the, the excitement that I get from unhiding. But I really believe that unhiding is about having the agency to choose um, so that you yourself personally are committing to that.
1: Many times people who do not have a disability struggle to know how to interact with somebody who has a disability. Before the show, you and I were talking about a recent trip you took to Belize hmm. and an attendant in a zip line. Can you tell us that story? What happened to you there, please?
2: Sure. So I was, yeah, in Belize, I was on sabbatical and I took the morning to try my hand at zip lining. and I show up Chris and I don't know if you, have you ever been zip lining. I have not. Okay. So they basically, they harness you up in this contraption and then that attaches with a wire to um, the zip line. And one of my friends, I'll never forget, said she had gone zip lining in Costa Rica and she said, Ruth, so important, you need to get the gloves because the gloves have the padding on them so that when you're on the zip line on that wire, you don't hurt your hand or burn through. You need to make sure that they're really good gloves. And that always stuck in my mind because I've wanted to try zip lining for a while and so I get to there, they harness me up and I notice everybody else in this group has these orange gloves. And so I call the guide over and I'm like, um, excuse me, I think I'm missing my gloves. And he said, yeah, you won't need them because you're going to be on the back of a buddy. I'm like, what? Uh and he said, no, I'm not. And he didn't even refer to my hand, which I think oftentimes what happens with disability. We just kind of ignore it and just make assumptions about people um, or what they want to hear. And so I said, no, absolutely not. Like I water ski, I downhill ski, I kayak. I have figured it all out. I am. I want the same experience as everybody else here. And luckily, another guide overheard us. And he said, yeah, you'll be fine. You actually only need one hand to zip line. That's just to break. He's, and he handed me my orange gloves. And listen, I don't think the first guide was doing it intentionally to be mean. I think he was thought he was being helpful. So he said, you know, I'm just going to handle this and she won't even have to worry about it. But that what that does, right, is that assumes people's ability um, rather than asking me what I needed. Um, and that's where um, that was the zip line story. And I think that happens again, a lot of times to people with disabilities is we make assumptions about ability rather than asking them.
1: Is there a bigger lesson in that story for people who do not have disabilities?
2: Yeah, it's ask, don't assume. So, you know, again, I would so much rather you ask me, Chris, what, what are you comfortable doing here? Give me the game plan. Here's what it takes. Here's what it's going to look like. What are you comfortable with? What do you need help around? What do you need support around? So rather than again, assuming ask, um, because again, I didn't know what zip lining undertook or what it would take. I knew that I needed gloves to do it. But nobody laid out the game plan of what that was going to look like. And so, but rather they made an assumption and they kind of took away my choice. And again, it goes back to choice. If I had known the rules of engagement, I then could say, hey, I'm not comfortable with that. Or, hey, I need some support. Yeah, that back of the buddy thing sounds great. But and I went ziplining and I accomplished it and it was beyond awesome. So if you get a chance to go ziplining, do it. It is flying in the air and it's awesome.
1: Awesome. I will definitely look that up. And to your point here, it's always dangerous to generalize. But in your experience, is there a common fear that people with disabilities share?
2: I think it goes to the place around two things. I guess it's one is about ability. Will someone judge me about my ability? Um, And will they think... Uh, will they not like me because of my difference? Um, so I think those two things are what resonates with me. But I think as I talk to people in the disability community as well as, A, are they going to say I can't do something without ever asking me so they judge my ability? And second, will they not like me because I look different?
1: We're going to dig a little deeper into those. In the second half of the show, we've been talking to Ruth Rathblot. We'll be right back after a short break.
0: Empowerment Channel. We hear just be you a lot these days, but who are you? What is an authentic life? The answer to these questions and more will be answered on the Authentic Living Show, hosted by Andrea Matthews. Andrea will interview some of today's spiritual, psychological experts and will provide her own wisdom to help you raise your consciousness to the level of your I am. Listen for Authentic Living with Andrea Matthews. Heard live every Wednesday afternoon at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. listening to next steps forward to reach Chris Meek or his guest on the show today please call in to 1-888-346-9141 that's 1-888-346-9141 or send an email to chris at nextstepsforward.com now back to this week's show
1: we are back with Ruth Rathblatt TEDx speaker, award-winning CEO, and leader of nonprofit organizations for more than 25 years. Ruth has spent her entire career focused on providing opportunities for those who face obstacles. Ruth currently serves on the board of the Lucky Finn Project, helping to raise awareness and celebrate people born with amniotic band syndrome and those with other limb differences. And she's currently writing a book that's scheduled to be released later this fall. Before the break, we were talking about the trip you took to Belize, And you are telling me that you took that trip because you were really struggling with the isolation caused by the COVID pandemic. Obviously the pandemic has had a major impact on just about everybody's life and certainly beginning with everything that went along with working from home. It's had an especially profound effect on people with disabilities. A silver lining was that by working remotely, many people with disabilities were able to demonstrate that they can do a job that an employer might not have hired them to do. Yet, as many employers begin to require employees to return to the office, you see this a dark lining in the pandemic's dark cloud. I'm eager to hear your thoughts about the silver lining first and then explain why you see a dark lining too, please.
2: Yeah, no, I think Chris, you know it's interesting. COVID COVID was tough for all of us, right? I think that there's a piece whether it, you had a visible difference or whether you had an invisible difference and what it's brought up for people in terms of the mental health piece. I think, you know, visible differences like mine There's definitely a space for them when we think about covid and the silver linings and the dark linings um, in terms of accessibility in terms of ability. But I also think there I should say and I also think that there are spaces around mental health that were affected by covid. And I know and you and I may have talked about this before that early on in covid. I, you know, like most people, my life stopped um, in terms of what I was able to do. I was in New York City. I was alone. I was concerned about the young people and my staff of what, what resources did they have? What did they need? And I was also thinking about myself, frankly, because the things that I enjoyed about here living in New York were no longer an option because we were all in that lockdown space. And... About four weeks in, I went to visit a coworker in the park and we were in that mandatory 12 feet apart space and I couldn't recognize her face. And it took me about 30 minutes to understand who I was looking at, what I was looking at. And it shook me so much that I went home and I started to Google isolation and what were the effects of isolation. And I am, am in no means insinuating that I am in, I was in prison because I know that I'm not, but I started to see the parallels of someone who had been in solitary confinement and one of the, for many years. And one of the first things he talked about was lack of facial recognition. And I said to myself, wow, if that happened to me in four weeks, what are we doing to people in the prison system? What are we doing to others who are often left isolated, like the elderly, like young people, et cetera? How this is, and definitely the prison system, how are we thinking about connection and community building? Um, and about two weeks later, I actually had a breakdown and I called my father and I said, I'm not sure that I can make it. Um, through this. This isn't my life. I'm not sure I want to live like this. And again, I didn't have a plan in terms of how I would end my life, but I knew that this wasn't my life. And so, as I started to, you know, I made a deal with him that I could make it through June 1st. Um, and as of June 1st, what I started to do is two things I started to get thera- back to therapy because I think that was essential in terms of how, again, what we do when we struggle and what does that look like? How do we get support? And then I started to realize I needed to see people. And I recognized that I could get sick with COVID, but that I needed to connect and have people in my life because this was not the way I could exist without them. And so I started to travel during COVID. And I share that because I think while I can spend a lot of time with you talking about visible, my physical difference, I think it's important to talk about the side effects of COVID also with mental health, because that was definitely a dark lining of COVID is this lack of connection and isolation. The silver lining of COVID for those with disabilities is that we were able to work from home. So those accessibility issues that many have not had challenge or have had challenges with were taken away, right? We could show that we could do work away from being actually in an office, that work could get done, it was productive. Um, And we didn't have to totally be outed every time we went to work around our physical difference. Um, We didn't have to feel shame around asking for accommodation because we had things set up at home. So work became accessible for many people during, with disabilities during COVID. That's a silver lining. That means you can communicate. That means you can be productive. That means you can be part of that the work world. The concern is that when we've now asked people to start to go back to work is, A, what does accessibility look like? What do accommodations look like? And I think importantly, how are people revealing themselves? I was on the phone, Chris, with a woman a few weeks ago who said to me, she's like, oh, you know, I think you put that poll out on LinkedIn about, do you hide part of yourself in the workplace? And I said, yeah, that's me. I like talk about, I talk a lot about hiding and unhiding. And she said, yeah, I answered, no, I don't hide anything. People know me. I said, that's great. She's like, yeah, except now I'm talking to you and I realize there are parts of my life that I hide. I said, oh, well, you know, I'm curious. What does that mean? And she said, Ruth, I was hired during COVID. Uh, None of my coworkers, I show up on these Zooms every day, but none of the coworkers know about my physical pain in my feet to the point that I can't walk anymore. So I have a disability. She said, and none of them know about my child who has mental health challenges, who I take care of. And I said, well, okay, what are you afraid of? She's like, I'm afraid that when I go back to work, people are going to judge me about my ability to be able to do the job because I can't walk. So I can't participate in some of the team activities, all those kind of, even showing up is going to be hard because I need to find a ride there, all those accommodations. I'm going to need some accommodations when I get to work, where do I ask for those? And I'm afraid they're going to think I'm a bad mom because my child is different. And so can, and can I do the job? Because there are going to be times that I need to leave work to take care of him. And that makes a lot of sense, right? Because if you've been able to hide behind this screen that we've all kind of gotten used to with these boxes, how do you now show up and reveal parts of yourself? Where do you have choice around that um, and agency? And so I think that's going to be something that we're challenged with. And I, again, I go back to Chris, also the mental health piece, like how are people showing up who maybe ha- may have anxiety about going back to work, um, may have been suffering through COVID and probably before COVID. Um Yeah. So I think there are some dark lines of how do we reintegrate into to life?
1: Yeah. And you know, I talked about this previously, you know, uh, I said the one positive thing to come out of COVID again, the, the silver lining is to your point it's put a spotlight on mental health but in a positive way mm-hmm. and it's making it more of a kitchen table conversation not something that you discard discount don't do talk up. about whatever exactly and so that's the one positive thing to your point about reengaging with society and certainly in the workforce you know through this i guess I, i'll call myself a mental health activist for lack of a better phrase but you know using linkedin you know almost every day now, i'm posting different things you know i talked about forbes writers you know articles out there about how to re-engage in the workforce, how to get back out there, how to get back to life circa 2019. And it's not going to be easy. Uh, you know, Like for me, for example, my organization uh, reduced our corporate footprint by almost 50%. So I no longer have an office, yeah. uh, except you know, I call my basement bunker. Where I've been living for two years with no windows. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's the new norm. And we as society, we as Americans will figure it out. We'll get through it. We as people. Uh, But it takes a few uh, strong vocal leaders to show people it's okay to not be okay.
2: Yeah. And I know that even, Chris, you may have heard this too, that even during COVID and I would say now kind of in the post-COVID world, trying to get a therapy appointment when you want to talk about those things has been incredibly tough. So how do we find and how do we, to your point, build those resources so that people know that, A, they exist, but also that they're available when they need them? Because that's another part of all of this was there was a higher demand for therapy um, during COVID and mental health services. So it's absolutely critical. Um,
1: And you think about the strains on those professionals Mm. who are their their therapists, who they talk to.
2: right? And so it
1: is, it's, it's a brain drain right now.
2: And I think you're right. We will get through this, but it means we need to talk about it. Right. We need to have communication. We need to make it uh, a source of conversation and that it's, there's no shame in it. There's no stigma, um, but that this is part of what some of us are dealing with um, so that that we can build out those bridges. We
1: well, mentioned the word stigma and almost every show I talk about the owner of the Indianapolis Colts, Jim Irsay, and he's got a campaign focused on mental health called Kicking the Stigma. And he and one of their linebackers, Darius Leonard, have been out there raising millions of dollars you know, for mental health advocacy. I also talk about weekly because I'm really trying to get him on the show. So Jim and Darius, if you're listening, would love to have you on as guests. I'm giving you all the plugs I can out here. Um, but you know, Ruth, I'm talking about re-engaging with society in the workforce. And I don't know if either of us or you have the answer for this, but what should someone who's been hiding a physical or mental health issue do, especially if they're hired during the pandemic, you know, when their company starts calling them back to work?
2: Yeah, I think, no, it's such a good, it's such a good question. I think that there's a few things. I think one is getting comfortable with your own difference and disability first of recognizing what are the, for lack of a better word, pain points in terms of what you're worried about showing. What where I are, Why are you hiding? What are you worried about showing? What are some of the worst case scenarios? And for me, I was able to kind of start to look at that stuff around Obviously, as I mentioned, therapy was a big piece of my journey. I think for me, I've also done a lot of journaling. I've done a lot of meditating, and I've also had some reality checks with friends and family about my, my what I've been, what I thought about my high end and hiding. I think the first place, though, when people are thinking about going back to work and they have that concern or anxiety, is to start with HR and to start to talk to the HR professionals about what, what it means and how, who they are, but what kind of accommodations they need to, and then allowing HR to do their job of helping to broker that conversation with a manager. If the person isn't comfortable with their manager, I think it's also, I mean, there's two places, right. And Chris, and we talked about that law firm incident in terms of, you know, him basically saying, did I go to kindergarten and then ushering me out so I can figure it out. If for one moment he had been curious to say, hey, Ruth, I'm wondering what's going on here. I'm curious why we you know, we hired you to do a job and it doesn't look like you can do it, what's happening? I may not, Chris, in that moment have opened up about what was happening, but I would have known he was curious about it and that he was creating that space. So while I think that managers and leaders are definitely responsible for creating the safe place, I also, as an employee, had a job to talk to him about it, right? To go back and say, "Hey, here's what's going on," because then, and only then, can he help me. Could he have helped me? Kind of, uh, could he have understood and could he have helped me? Um, so I do think for people that are looking at going back to work and that anxiety piece, it's starting with HR or starting with a ma- and or starting with a manager who where you can create that safe place to talk about what's going on, and how, what kind of accommodations you may or may not need.
1: staying with the theme of returning back to whatever that new norm workforce looks like. How vocal should we be in demanding employers live up to the responsibilities of accommodating employees with disabilities, you know, particularly in cases where maybe they've hired somebody with a disability that the employer didn't know about, and they've not had employees with disabilities before now?
2: Yeah. You know, it's something, it's so interesting. I When I think about an imagining the world and the safe place in the world, I think about what if accommodations were actually the norm rather than the exception for disability that everyone in the intake was asked, do you need an accommodation? Like, is there anything where you may need an accommodation around everyone? Not just people with disabilities, not because we're making assumptions about ability, but everyone is asked, do you need an accommodation? Then it takes away that stigma of only people with disabilities need accommodations. There are others who may need accommodations that don't see themselves with a disability and they're afraid to ask because it might out themselves. So I think as we think about the space around accommodations, what if we normalized it as something that everyone would need and that the exception becomes those who don't rather than those who do? So that's how I think about accommodations, if that makes sense.
1: Yep, absolutely. Thank you. One in four American adults has a disability, which makes people with disabilities the largest minority group in America. Yet, diversity discussions largely ignore disabilities. You said the result is that people with disabilities continue to live in hiding. Mm
2: -hmm. What
1: needs to be done to include disability in diverse agendas?
2: Yeah, so I tell a lot of stories. <laughs> and so the reason that I was able to kind of come to that conclusion is twofold. One is in a leadership position, I was questioned about the diversity of leadership in the organization. And when I raised the question as to if someone saw me as diverse, the answer back was kind of a slight, well, you're a woman. And often when we talk about diversity, we talk in the lenses and the work streams of race. We talk about gender and maybe sexual orientation are kind of the main things that we focus on, which are so super important and critical to conversations on diversity. And Chris, we leave out that group that you just mentioned, which is disability. We leave out some other groups too, but that largest minority group of disability is left out of diversity conversations. And so when I said, yes, I am a woman, you're right. So that's a lens of diversity. Then I said, well, what about my limb difference? What about my disability? And I was told, well, we don't see you that way. And I said, not asking to be seen that way. I'm asking for it to be acknowledged as part of the diversity conversation. And I started realizing that I'd been on a number of panels and to a number of panels where disability was constantly left off of the diversity agenda. I think it's only 4% of, while 90% of companies prioritize diversity, only 4% actually recognize disability as part of that agenda. And so what I started realizing is if we don't talk about something, we don't measure it, we don't count it, then how are we recognizing it? so that people can feel comfortable using their voice. And so again, if disability isn't included when I go to those panels or I'm on those panels of around race and gender, but disability is missing, it signals to me, we don't talk about disability here, like disability. So you can not, you can be silenced. And again, same thing that we do to kids right around silencing them with about the conversation. We're doing that often in conversations around diversity. Um, It's almost as if there's a hierarchy in diversity conversations about what gets covered and what doesn't. And so my passion project is the idea of how do we expand diversity to be fully inclusive? Because disability again, is visible differences like mine and invisible differences like mental health and neurodiversity that have to be part of the conversation because there's enough room at the table for all of us.
1: Do you have the solution yet?
2: I think the solution is to your question from before, too, is start talking about it, start noticing, um, you know, hopefully what this this podcast and interview with you does is it starts to plant a seed. Right. So that when people read about diversity, they hear about diversity, they learn about diversity, they start to he- think wait, is disability in this article? Is disability part of this panel that I'm going to? Is disability something I'm reading about when, I, when they talk about diversity? Because oftentimes it's not. I'm shocked how many articles, even the Oxford Dictionary has labeled, you know as part of the definition says, race and gender and sexual orientation. And then it says, and other. I'm like, well, what about disability? It's a large minority group. It's the largest minority group. So I think converse, really talking about it. And that's why I think your guests in terms of their, the conversations that you're having are super important because it's raising awareness. It's talking about it. It's saying who's on my team, who has a voice, and also who's not represented. Who do I need to be hearing from in terms of the diversity conversation and diverse opinions? So I think it's talking about it.
1: Well, and the good news is you mentioned that 90% of organizations focus on diversity, equity, inclusion as one of their top, if not the top priority for the organization, my firm thankfully being one of them, which is how we got connected. We just need more champions like you out there with that voice, you know, beating your drum, you're ringing your cowbell saying, look, there's something else here that needs to be brought to the table for this conversation. And so for, the, for those of you listening, get your cowbell out, get your drum out, start beating, start ringing, because uh, it's time, it's past time.
2: Absolutely. No. And I think you're a true champion of it and a true ally. Right. Because it's not just me getting out there, but then what are the where are the places that I can get out there and talk to so that people who are listening because you do have influence and a voice That can also hear other voices in this conversation so yeah no it's absolutely getting out there and chris honestly it's also doing the work on your own to learn about it like i can raise the conversation and then it's up to your listeners to go out and start to learn on their own i know that when black lives matter occurred and george floyd was murdered that i had to do the work myself because there was a lot that i needed to learn there was a lot i needed to listen to And only then could I create an action strategy and really be an ally because I needed to understand. So not my job of my staff at that time or my students or the families to educate me, I had to go out and do the educating of myself to come back and then start to talk about it. And I think that's one of the um, challenges with this work is people sometimes expect, well, I'm just gonna learn from you. No, you go out and, and learn. Like, and read, there's enough, the beauty of the internet, as much as we talk about the internet's pros and cons, the beauty of the internet is there's so much interesting information and so many interesting communities who are doing this work, especially around disability.
1: Strength in numbers.
2: Strength in numbers and strengthen voice um, in terms of information. There's a lot of information out there. Um,
1: so I mentioned your book earlier and let's talk about that for a minute. Sure. What's the title and what was the spark of inspiration?
2: Yep. The title is Single-Handedly. And as I've shared with you, I have gone through my life really thinking of myself as having one hand and that I had to do it all on my own Um, from the hiding part to the unhiding part. And the truth is most of us don't have to do it alone. Um, we actually need to build connection. We need to build community. That's what was helpful in my journey of unhiding. Um, and so the book is single-handedly and it's a journey from hiding to unhiding. Um, for those who are out there feeling like they have to hide part of themselves, I'm there to offer a solution that you don't, and it doesn't have to be so lonely because so many of us who are hiding think we're the only ones. And I think there was a statistic back in 2013 that, um, 61% of people are hiding part of themselves in the workplace. That's a lonely number. It's exhausting, like we talked about before, and it doesn't have to feel like that.
1: And that's almost two thirds. That's incredible.
2: And I actually think that number is higher um, than 60% because that's
1: actually who admitted it, right? Exactly. Right. So, more importantly, where can we find your book when it's released? And how can people find you on social media or the web or get in touch with you if they want you to speak to their group?
2: Yeah, I hope they do. And I hope that even through this conversation, if there was anything that resonated with people, Chris, in terms of whether it's about hiding, it's about disability, it's about difference and becoming an ally, I hope they do get in touch with me. And the best way right now is through LinkedIn. Um, I'm a huge champion of LinkedIn, love the platform in terms of connection. I have a website, ruthrathglot.com. I'm on social media, on Facebook and Instagram, not so much Twitter, but I'm getting there. Um, (laughs) but I do think, yeah, for people to reach out and my book is due out in early fall, just in time for disability awareness month. So it's, you know, I think, and again, this is April, this is limb difference awareness month, which is huge because trying to raise awareness, we have a challenge going on right now called now you try, which is for those in my life, I've always wanted them to say, hey, how, how difficult is this to, to even tie your shoe with one hand? And so the challenge is a social media challenge that literally just started yesterday um, to have people try to tie their shoe with one hand so that for one moment they can put themselves in my shoes.
1: We're just two minutes left. What's your parting advice for audience about how to overcome obstacles to become more empowered and especially during times of adversity?
2: Yeah, I think what's worked for me is to to think about it in chunks, right? This is not uh, a final relay race that you have to get everything perfect the first time you go through it, but that this is a marathon. And so that at moments you can divide it up and say, okay, I'm hiding something about myself. And that awareness came when I started to realized that I wasn't really connecting with people. I wasn't showing my full self. I wasn't letting people in. And so I think the first step for me was, Hey, how do I connect? How do I, what do I need to know about myself? What do I need to learn about myself and understand about owning my difference? And so whether, again, as I went through therapy and have been through therapy, have journaled, meditated, finding a place, that where you can start to wrestle with some of the things that are going on, why you're hiding, and then also connecting to others outside and building that community for yourself. I found the lucky Finn project kind of accidentally, but I have to say it changed my life because I found a community. I found my people. Um, and so just knowing that I wasn't alone anymore was probably the biggest gift that I had and have been given.
1: True inspiration. Ruth Rathplot, Thank you so much for being with us today.
2: Thank you so much, Chris. I've so enjoyed just getting to know you and being able to talk to you and share this part of my life.
1: No, really appreciate that. Thanks for your time. I'm Chris Meek. We'll be here same time, same place next Tuesday, 1 p.m. Eastern. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward.